Glad that you are here with us, and uh, we are always, uh, always glad to uh, have visitors with us, but especially today, uh, we got Jack and Donna's daughter here, Vicki, up from Nashville. It's good to have her with us, and uh, she and her husband uh, are down in Nashville, Tennessee, working in a church and uh, ministering there, so uh, always good to have them. It's good to have Nathan and Roz back here with us today. Coming back to us from, all these people come from warmer climates. You ever notice that? Nobody gets called to like Alaska, all right, Anchorage. Uh, but uh, anyways, they come to us from uh, California, so it's good to have you guys with us as well, and I'm sure that uh, both of your families are thrilled with uh, your presence for the weekend. So awesome to see you. We are wrapping up a series today called Starting Over, and uh, in, in this series, we have talked about new beginnings as, as we hopefully, prayerfully, um, begin to come out of where we have been for the past eight. Uh, so many things and so many people find themselves starting over. Uh, and, and sometimes we find ourselves in that season of life where we are starting over. Of course, we now move to where uh, with, within the next few weeks, kids will be heading back to school all over the country uh, within a month. They'll be doing that uh, here, here in our state and, and, and beginning to head back. And, and, and they start, you know, football starts next week. So you got tryouts and you got two-a-days and you got the NFL coming. And everything kind of gears up for the fall. And, and it's kind of like a restart. Some kids moving into a new season, a new grade, a new school. Some of you moving into maybe a new job, new employment, new responsibilities, new way of doing things. You're trying to figure out how do I make this work because now I'm working at home and I'm also working at the job. And I I got all that going on, and, uh, and, and some of you may be into a new relationship. We find ourselves in those seasons of life as well, where sometimes it's a new relationship starting over. How to make sure that next time is better than the last time, or at the very least, how to make sure that next time is not like the last time. And there are ways that we can do that and ways that that can happen. And we have been looking at scripture and talking about that. And the first thing we did, we covered three myths that we kind of fall into the pattern of. The first one is the uh, experience myth. Well, I'm experienced. Because I'm experienced, I'll do better. But that is a myth, right? Experience doesn't make you better. Experience just means you're older, <laughs> um, it's, we, we have to look at our experience. We have to have evaluated experience because when we evaluate our experience, then we have to suddenly take stock of what part we played, where we come into the equation. Because oftentimes, a starting over process means that in our mind and in our heart, we of course are blaming someone else. It is never our fault. And a lot of times, maybe it's not. But there still needs to be stock taken as to what part did I play and what can I do better to make sure that next time is better than last time. So the experience myth, it is a myth. The second one is I know better myth. Because I know better, I'll do better. That's a myth. And the Apostle Paul said as much. The Apostle Paul, who maybe. Is it not possible the most prolific in every part of Christianity? Yet he would say, even though I know what I want to do, even though I know the good that I want to do, so often I do the exact opposite. I don't do what I want to do, and, and I wind up doing what I don't want to do. It's a myth. 
to think that because we know better, we're automatically going to do better. Just because you know better doesn't mean that you have the self-control or discipline to do better. And, and then the, the last myth is the time myth. Well, I'm running out of time. Everybody's racing ahead of me. I've got to jump back in because, no, we need to understand when it comes to starting over, sometimes time is our friend. Time is our friend. And, and we need to step back rather than jump right back in. And that helps us when it comes to starting over. And then in the past uh, few weeks, we've also talked about the fact that uh, we always look at other people. We always have the tendency to compare. We always have the tendency to wish and pray that God would help someone else to start over. But the question to us, the question that is asked of us, much like Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 21, when Peter said, hey, what about him? Talking about John, Jesus said, don't worry about him. Worry about you. Will you follow me? Will you do what is required? Will you do what is necessary? There are conformers and there are transformers. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And how's that happen? The renewing of our mind. But remember that sometimes before you can renew, you have to remove. Okay? If you want to renew your car to the way that it looked originally when you pulled it out of the showroom, when you bought it new, you need to remove the McDonald's bag from three months ago. Okay? You need to vacuum. You need to get rid of some stuff before you worry about armor all in the dashboard. Sometimes we have to remove from our mind, from our lives, before we can renew. But so much of it happens in the mind. And then last week, Dan kind of pulled apart Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And he shared with us, even from personal experience, the fact that all things can work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, today, we're wrapping this series up. Today, this is the finale. And I kind of want to personalize and at the same time spiritualize what we talk about today as we, as we wrap this thing up. And then I want to talk to you today about church. I want to talk to you about the church starting over, but in us starting over in the church. As I look back on my life, I, I realize that so many of the restarts in my life. So many of the new seasons in my life started in church. I was baptized in church. Now, again, I understand that for me, my background is a little different than most. Because when I look back on my life, I look back on a life at one church, one place. So all, so many of the events that revolve around my life revolve around my experience at Calvary. But I was baptized at this church, not this building. I was baptized in our building on Eureka where they actually had to remove parts of the platform. You remember that? In order to have a baptism. And you'd have to take out like the choir and you'd have to take out certain parts of, of the, the platform and move these big pieces. And then right underneath it, there was this baptistry, and you'd fill it with water, and I don't believe it was heated in those days. You just filled it with water. Woo! 
That was made you realize you were filled with the Spirit. Anyways, but, uh, uh, and I was baptized by my grandfather. I remember that. Uh, my, my grandfather baptized me. My dad was on his way to an evangelistic crusade, and he had told his music guy, you start the service. I'm going to see my son get baptized. My grandfather baptized me right at the beginning. Dad was in the back, and then he slipped out and went on to his meeting. But I remember getting baptized in the church. I remember so many events and as a, as a, a, a child and as a, a young person in the church. I, I remember, of course, getting married in church. Uh, we didn't get. We got married in my wife's church where she had come up in, in, at Beacon, and uh, but we got married in the church. We we dedicated our children in the church. Each one of these things a different season of life, but it happened in the church. I remember watching those my kids develop their talents and their gifts in the church. So many concerts. So many meetings, so many rallies, so many crusades, so many services, all of them happening in the church. The place of more hellos than I can count. And the place of more goodbyes than I would wish for. So much of life in the church. It has been the starting over point for billions of people. For me, maybe for you. And it's time for the church once again to take a place of priority and prominence in our lives. Why? Why? Is the church perfect? No. Far from it. In fact, the church is a mess. Why? Because I'm here. Okay? And I'm a mess. And, 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 and you're here, and forgive me, you're a mess. It's a group of messed up people who realize we need a Messiah. And that's why Jesus came. The church is an imperfect place. Then why would it be a place of prominence? Why would it be a place of priority? Because the first person who mentioned the word church was a guy by the name of Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18, I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What was he saying? Jesus was saying, on the rock that you have just stated, Peter, in fact, I'm going to change your name. You are no longer going to be called Simon. You are going to be called Peter, the rock. Not because you're such a great guy. We've talked about that, right? Not because you've never messed up. Not because you're going to be perfect from here on out. I'm naming you Peter, the rock, because of what you've just stated. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell. What was he saying? There will be nothing that is able to withstand my church. Nothing will be able to stand against 
the church. Nothing will be able to destroy the church. And have there not been people that have tried? Have there not been countries that have endeavored to stamp it out? Have there not been dictators who have endeavored to make sure it no longer existed? In fact, what you would find is that in some of the places around the world where it is the most difficult to go to church, those are the places where Christianity is exploding and where people are sacrificing in order to head to a place where they can come together and worship the name of Jesus and gather as the church. Nothing ever since Jesus said those words has been able to stand against the church. And in fact, the very government that tried to kill and crucify the one who stated it Within 300 years, they would become what would be known as a Christian nation. The ruler of that Roman Empire would say, you know what? Christianity is the religion of our day. How in the world did that happen? With a group of ragtag fishermen businessmen, people who probably couldn't get along unless they had the name of Jesus underneath them because Jesus said, nothing will be able to stand against my church. Even the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against it. What's that mean? Nothing stands in the way of the church and it needs to be a place of prominence and priority, especially for those who claim the name of Jesus, but even and maybe even more so for those who need the name of Jesus. It's interesting what he said just before that statement. Just before he made that claim about the church, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they began to give him some answers. Well, uh, you know, some people say you're, you're, you're a pretty good teacher. You're, you're the best speaker they've ever heard. You, you know, you definitely do some miracles. You're, you're definitely from God. You're a prophet. You're Elijah. You're John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then Jesus gets specific. And doesn't it drive you crazy when he does that? It's just so much easier if Jesus just keeps things general. Because then we can just kind of, but then he zeroes in. He says, who do you, who do you say I am? You think I'm Elijah? And that's when Peter spoke up. And that's when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, on this, I will build my church. And the New Testament tells us that if we will lift up Jesus, he will draw all men unto himself. And that's the job of the church, to lift up the name of Jesus. So here's where I want to try to take you. And, and I, as I looked at this message, it's one of those messages where it's like, man, I feel like I'm all over the place. But hopefully there's a thread that ties its way through that makes sense. But, but I want us to go back to kind of the very beginning of this when we talked about the fact that starting over 
is not a destination. Starting over is not a place. Starting over is a person. And that's Jesus Christ. Starting over is a person. And that's Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. Jesus said, come to me all of you who are weary. All of you who are burdened. And I will give you rest. John chapter 6, verse 37, he said, Everyone who the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never send away. Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, I, I threw this one in there. It's probably not even in the notes or on the slides. Matthew 19, 14 said, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Do not hinder children coming to Jesus. And parents, we have to make sure that we are not somehow a hindrance kids coming to know Christ, coming to the Father. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Well, I know that's a dirty word in July, <laughs> but you understand what he's talking about, don't you? That white blanket of that first fresh fallen snow, especially if it occurs like around, I don't know, December 20th or 21st, you're getting in the Christmas spirit, and you look out, and it's so beautiful because it has covered up everything that was underneath it, and Isaiah says that's what happens when Jesus comes and forgives your sin, though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow, though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Come, says the Lord. I know you're a mess. I know you're a sinner. I know you need to be forgiven, and that's what I offer. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this Say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Do you ever hear that before? John chapter 4, Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman who he just by chance happened to run into in a well. His disciples were off getting food, and there's Jesus making his way through a town that most of the disciples, if they had put together the GPS, they would have routed it around. They never even went through Samaria, but John, coming to grips with the understanding of what has happened and Jesus and what he was all about, he says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to because there were people there who needed him. And he meets this woman at the well, and the woman talks about the water that's in the well and how precious the well is and how traditional the well is. And this is one of Jacob's wells. This is a special well. And Jesus looks at her and says, hey, here's the problem. It's only going to quench your thirst for a little while, but if you will drink, 
from the well of water that I'm offering you, you will never thirst again. And of course, she was looking at it from a physical standpoint. And Jesus, much like he had to do with Nicodemus in chapter 3, when he was talking about being born again, and Nicodemus was looking at that from a physical standpoint, and Jesus has to say, I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking spiritually. And that's what he shares with this woman. I know you've got some issues, you've got some problems, but I'm here to help you. I'm here to offer you something to drink that will refresh you. And now here we are in the final book of the Bible, in the final message that John writes, and it's referred to again in Revelation that the Spirit, the Spirit of God and the bride, who is the bride? The bride is the church of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Jesus even refers to himself as the groom sometimes when he's talking with his disciples and with the Pharisees and trying to explain what is happening. And Jesus is the groom in this situation and the church is his bride. And Revelation says that at that point in time, the spirit and the bride say, come. Come to what? Come to a place of starting over. Come to a destination that can make a difference. But the destination is not a place. It is a person. Come to Christ. Come and drink freely from the water that he offers. The spirit and the bride. In Genesis, and again in Matthew, talks about marriage between a man and a woman. And what does it say? It says that's why God brought the first man and woman together, and he performed that first wedding ceremony, as it says in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and it talks about them coming together, and what does it say? The two will become one. The two will become one. Jesus reiterates it in the New Testament. Isn't it interesting by the time you get to Revelation, it is talking about the fact that both the groom and the bride, both Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, and the church invite people to come. We are not at opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to the invitation that we are offering. We are offering for people to come and drink from the water that is fulfilling, the water that can quench their thirst for life, the water that is refreshing from the Spirit of God himself, the water that is Jesus Christ. That is what we invite them to. We invite them to a person. We invite them into a relationship with Christ. Church is not somewhere we go. Church is something we are. Let me say that to you again. Church is not somewhere we go. Church is something we are. Now I'm going to say that one more time. Because I think that I have probably half of my deacons in this auditorium for this first service. And, and I think I have a couple of staff members in this service. And so I know that they agree. And I know in their hearts they're screaming, amen, praise the Lord. But I just want to give them a chance to verbalize it just a little bit. Somebody asked me as I was coming up, why are you in a suit? 
I have no idea, except that I just felt this message this morning, this morning was important enough that I would look like I knew what I was doing, Mark. And so I want us to act like we know what we're doing as a church and as leaders. So I'm going to say it one more time. Church is not somewhere we go. Church is something we are. Very good. See, because here's the deal. If all we do is go to church, then guess what? You can leave the church. But that's not what we were called to. If Christ is in us, then the church is part of us. And we stand with him to send out the invitation, come. 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 Refresh yourself. Come, those of you that are in need of starting over. You don't start over in a place, although we will offer that destination to them. What we offer to them is Jesus Christ. Come and drink from a well that will never run dry. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul uses the analogy when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ Loved the church and gave himself up for her. Don't just attend the church, be the church. And I know what you're saying. You're like, okay, Billy, that sounds really good. Nice, nice little phrase. You all say amen, and then, you know, we get out of here in a few minutes and go have brunch. What's the difference? How during the week am I supposed to be the church? Let me give you just to make that happen. And hopefully I phrase them in such a way. Some of you take, take notes. Some of you put it down on your phone. Some of you actually write it out. Um, but for some of you, you're just trying to hang on, okay? And I've done enough public speaking to know that if I'm lucky, you're going to grab about 10% of what I'm saying today. So I've tried to put these in phrases where at least sometime during the middle of the week, you'll be like, what did he say? What was that rhyme again? So, here we go. Ready? Don't get enraged. Get engaged. Don't get enraged. Get engaged. First week of high school camp up at Hiawatha had a couple of issues, uh, two or three issues that had, had happened during the week. And, and, and it included even a couple of young people getting into a fight that had to be broken up by the staff. And we were sitting around a table, a few of the leaders talking, how do we deal with this, that kind of thing. And one of the things I mentioned to them, I said, listen, don't forget that for the past 18 months, these kids have been through everything that their parents, their grandparents, all of you, all adults have been through. They've been through it too. And in some ways, it's been more difficult on them than it has anybody else. And I said, I don't know about you, but all I see are a lot of people that are angry. I really, I really have, and I know I've used this example many times, I really have yet to drive anywhere where somebody hasn't been somewhat aggressive in their driving, as if to say, where I'm going is more important than where you're going, get out of my way. And in one case, I don't know if you heard about it, but earlier this week, in one case, that is exactly what happened on the road, and the guy was so mad, he pulled out a gun and shot at the other car. There have been more incidents of road rage in the past month in the Detroit area than there have been in numerous months combined. Why? Because people are angry. They don't even know why. They're just angry. 
angry. And scripture has a lot to say about anger. And here's the bottom line. There's a lot of Christians that are angry. They're just angry. And unfortunately, a lot of them have decided to take their anger out on other Christians, other denominations, other believers, but sometimes they just take it out on the world in general. You don't have to search far on social media to find an angry Christian. Just angry about something. And needing to vent that anger, needing to vent that emotion. Psalm 37.8 says, stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Don't lose your temper. It only leads to harm. And maybe your rage is not poured out on the drivers around you. Although I must admit, I've had to hold myself in check myself when I've been driving. And I've just wanted to, you know, get upset and get mad. I'm like, wait a second, you can't, you can't be talking one way and doing another, driving another. So, but we find a way, don't we, to vent that. And sometimes we take it out on those that we love the most. They are the ones who become who we vent our anger and rage to. But oftentimes, I am afraid that many times people are just thumbing it, typing it. I'll vent it out that way. Stop being angry. It only leads to harm. Psalm 86, 15. You, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. If there was anyone who should be angry, right? Wouldn't it be God? Yet the psalmist says, you are slow to anger. You're a God of compassion and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of your bitterness, hot tempers, anger, loud quarreling, cursing, and hatred. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, this is where sometimes the parents take it out of the kids. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I don't think that that scripture verse is necessarily talking about just in the moment. I think it's talking about raising up children who later in life then look back and become angry because mom and dad talked one way but lived another. Ephesians 4.26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why would he say that? Because if you let it go down on your anger and you let it go down on your anger and you let it go down on your anger, pretty soon that anger turns into bitterness. And Paul says that bitterness can have roots that dig down really deep. And all of a sudden, instead of just clipping something off with your weed whacker, now you've got to take a shovel and dig down there and by the root. Get rid of your anger. God's love diffuses conflict and disarms critics. It is persuasive, attractive, and it communicates that God cares, and it communicates that his church cares. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that the enemy wants to remove every opportunity of love 
and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. The enemy wants to remove every ounce of that from the church. And I fear sometimes that he is succeeding. And the only way we can have those qualities and exhibit those qualities, we can't do it on our own. It has to be an inside job. It's got to be the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And if the Spirit of God is what we listen to, and if the Spirit of God is what we feed, then the fruit of that Spirit will become part of our lives. That will make a difference in our lives. It'll make a difference for our lives. But so often Jesus talked about the difference that it would make in other people. That's why he wants a love that overflows. That's why he wants a joy that overflows. That's why he talked about a peace that would pass understanding. God has a great plan. God has an overwhelming purpose for your life. But it starts by relying on his spirit to live out through us. We spend far too much time arguing and fighting and complaining. Stop being enraged. Start getting engaged. Start getting engaged. It is time for us to engage again in the work that God has given his church to do. I don't know why he chose the church. I don't know why. I don't know why he would look at a group of ragtag 11 guys that seemingly he had to say the same thing to over and over. And I mean, how many times do they have to be on a boat when a storm brews up and they're like, oh, just go get Jesus. No, nobody ever said that, did they? Remember that last time? Just go get him. Oh, yeah, look, it's just, it's Jesus. More than once, right? A group of thousands of people, and they're like, uh, how are we going to feed these people? More than one time. It wasn't just a one-time episode where he fed thousands of people, yet seemingly over and over and over again, he had to keep reiterating. And then it gets to that last week, and he meets with his disciples, and man, he poured into them in one message everything that had taken him three years to cover, because he just wanted to try and make sure one more time. But then Jesus, resurrected Jesus appears to them. That changed everything. And these guys who were afraid of their own shadow at times would then go out and change the world. And the only thing, the only thing that would sometimes trip them up would be arguments and anger within the church itself. And they'd have to come together and work things out. But they would, and God blessed. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that he added to their number every day. Is it possible, is it possible that God has used these past months, that God has used the pandemic to usher in one more opportunity of revival for people to come to Christ? And if all I worry about 
getting back to Outback and not having to wait in line and not having to get takeout and being able to go in there and have it be 100%. If all I'm worried about is getting back to Comerica Park and being able to sit in the stands and go, and, and, and trust me when I say I'm, I'm thrilled for all of those things, okay? So don't, please, please, don't, you know, don't take me as, oh, well, we're not supposed to. No, no, no. Already been to Outback. Already been to Comerica. <laughs> that's why I use those examples. I've already been there. But if that's my only concern, and I don't try to pull apart what God is saying to me and the priority of my life, then I'm missing out. I'm missing out on his plan and his purpose. Some people have asked, uh, and some of them have asked people that are far greater, more knowledgeable than I as far as tribulation and second coming and all that kind of thing. Is this part of and is this? So let me just tell you from my very weak theological perspective, okay? No, I don't believe it's part of the tribulation or anything like that. I don't think it's ushering it in. But can I tell you what it's done? Has it not made you fully aware of how easily all of the things that are talked about as part of a tribulation period can be put in place like that. Like that. At a moment's notice. All of these things can be put in because we have lived through a part of that. Listen, Christ is coming back. And he's going to take his church, which will be awesome. But the part that won't be awesome are all of the opportunities that we've let slip through our fingers. Because we have not placed a priority on that which Jesus said would last forever. Okay, got to roll. Second thing is this. First one was, let me see how you're doing. Don't get enraged, get Okay, very good. Never mind. All right, number two, have an attitude of gratitude. Have an attitude of gratitude. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20 says, and give thanks... For everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks for everything. Give thanks. No matter your thought process on this entire process, has it at the very least made you a little more grateful every time your feet hit the floor? In the morning. Has it made you a little more grateful for the breath that God gives you? Has it made you a little more grateful for the health that you have to enjoy life, to live out the purpose and the passion that God has for you? We need to be people that are grateful, thankful. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests 
be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. It's like, seriously? I mean, are you being serious, Paul? I'm not supposed to be anxious at all? And I wonder if Paul was trying to let us know that our anxiety, our worry, our concern can sometimes be offset if we will be more grateful. Take those requests, take those anxieties, take those worries to God, but do it with thanksgiving. Because here's the deal, once we begin to thank him, once we begin to praise him, once we begin to bless his name for all the blessings he has given to us, they surely outnumber the difficulties, the worries, the anxieties. And so he understood the importance of giving thanks and giving praise because that would change our attitude. And changing of the attitude changes the altitude of your life. Changing the altitude of your life changes the vision and the perspective that you have. Have an attitude of gratitude. Colossians chapter 2 verse 7. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Let your roots grow down into him. It all comes back, doesn't it, to the person of Jesus Christ and the message of the church is Jesus. And then here's, here's the last one, number three, we're, we're wrapping up here. Well, let me make sure you got that one. Change that slide, Elaine. I don't want him to cheat. Have an attitude of... Here's the last one. In order to live, you have to give. <laughs> now again, I got you know, about half of my deacons in here, so they're all like, oh, he's going to go into the offering. Well, yeah, that's part of it. But that's just part of it. It's just part of it. Because, see, there are some who would say, yeah, I, I give my money, but leave me alone. <laughs> Don't expect anything else. No time, no resources, no giftedness. I give him my money. God says, yeah, I need more. I need more. I remember I, I went to a high school, and so we used to, you know, every once in a while, the coach, who, he was a great guy. I mean, if I, if I listed the five men who were most influential in my life, be in that list. Um, but, 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 he would often, you know, because we're in a Christian school, it was almost like, well, we need to have devotions, you know, as a basketball team, and it's like, <laughs> it's, it never really quite worked out, okay, because, I mean, you're just not really thinking about God when you want to go out and destroy the other team. But every once in a while, he'd have a devotion. And I remember one time he asked this way back in high school, and this for me is, you know, 10, 15 years ago now. Um, <clears throat> he, said, he said, what, I've never forgotten this, what if God had asked us to tithe our time? Wouldn't that be even worse than tithing our money? What if God had asked us to tithe our time? Every 24-hour period, just give me two hours and 40 minutes. You can have the rest. 
Maybe one of the reasons that he didn't is because he wanted our faith in him to, again, like I've mentioned before, weave a thread through every compartment of our life. He wanted all of our time to be his. So that Sunday morning when you come to church, and again, I'm so thrilled that you're here, okay? I, trust me when I say I, I'm not recommending that we stop attending the church. No, we come together as a church to rejoice in the fact that we've been the church throughout this past week. But we don't have it in a box. We don't pull it down. And, and when we put on our Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, we, we pull down our, our, our Jesus box, our, our our Sunday box, our church box, our faith box. And then when we get back, we take these clothes off and we put it up on a shelf. And then we live our lives, okay? We pull off a different box for Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Maybe even when it gets to the weekend, we pull a different box down for Friday and Saturday. But then Sunday, hopefully, I'll feel good enough that I can pull down that church box again. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Let me. Let me be part of every box. Let me be part of every element of your life. That's what it means to be the church and not just attend the church. And, and so when it comes to, to living Jesus, let it be known to his closest followers and to all those who would listen and to all those of us down through the ages that if we truly wanted to live, we need to understand the importance of being able to give. Finance a part of that? Yes. Because Jesus even said, where your treasure is, that's where I find your heart. That's where I find your heart. So yes, that is part of it, but it went beyond that, didn't it? Because each of you have been given a gift. And some of you more than one. And God so wants you to use that for his glory. Not just to make a living, not just to enjoy a hobby, but to actually make kingdom differences. We need to be willing to give. And when it comes to our finances, I, I think there would be so many of you that have stories to tell, testimonies to give about the faithfulness of God. And when you gave this, God gave back and you have those stories, but it does seem like, doesn't it, every time we get a new opportunity, we, we struggle. We're still like, I don't know, what if he doesn't come through like he did the last time? But here's the deal, we are not, we are not spiritual consumers. We are to be, as the church, spiritual contributors to the work to the ministry, to the service, to the kingdom, to his church. John chapter 10, verse 10. Many of you have heard it before. Some of you have it memorized. Jesus said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Satan himself comes to steal and kill and destroy, which means what? It means the church has to have a message where we give, we live, and we restore. We are completely the opposite. 
He comes to steal and kill and destroy, but we bring a message to give and to live and to restore. You need a starting point. You need to start over. This is the place. We do not serve a God of second chances. Praise God, we serve a God of the third chance and the fourth chance and the eighth chance and the the tenth chance. And we should be willing as church, forgive me if this riles you ever so slightly, but we should be willing to do anything short of sin to win people to Christ. And if that means lining up our trunks and filling them with candy and serving the community, if that means serving food and, and getting back to a festival atmosphere on a July 3rd fireworks show, if, if, that, if that means opening up a pantry on Saturdays and allowing people who may never darken the doors of this church as far as coming to a service, but we let them come in and fill bags full of food. If it means that we take hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of brand new material from Sam's Club and we open our doors and we give it away, then that's what we do. That's what we do. If it means that we spend hundreds, thousands of dollars on equipment to start a brand new ministry that we were kind of forced into beginning, but not forced into enhancing, but we make sure that every week we have an online presence. For our people, yes, but where does it go from here? What an incredible opportunity. I have given out numerous cards and said, hey, look, you know what? Maybe you're a little squeamish coming. Check us out online. And you can rest assured that week after week, they will hear the word of God. And on most Sundays, they will be presented with the opportunity of coming to know Christ as Savior. The church does not exist for us. I think at some point we need to go back and revisit that 40 days of purpose from Rick Warren. Guy had a best-selling book. Truth is he could have written one sentence and closed the book and that would have preached. Because the opening sentence of that book says it's not about you. I don't know how he sold so many copies with that as his opening line. That is not enticing. What What do you mean it's not about me? It's all about me. No, it's not about you. And the church does not exist for us. But we are the church, and we exist for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God has not given us a spirit of fear, Paul would say to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, but of power and of love and a sound mind. 
And let me give you one more verse and we're done. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. You're like, Billy, you share that verse a lot. I love that verse. The problem is that's the part I emphasize, isn't it? To him who is able to do far more than you can ever begin to ask or even imagine. According to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory. I don't know what the next three words are. In the church. And in Christ Jesus. Throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. That's what we are part of. And it is time for us. It is time for the church with a capital C. It is time for the church of Calvary. To grab hold of a a new vision. And to again make this a place of priority. And to make it a place of our passion. And to make it a place of prominence in our lives. Why? Because of what it will do for us? No. Even though it will. Even though many of you can look back on so many of those parts of your life where the starting point has been the church. But the reason we're doing it is because we know that there are so many people out there. There are so many people that you see every day and they need, they need a do-over. <laughs> they need a restart. They need to be able to push the button. And this can be a place, not the destination for a starting point, but this can be the place that shares with them that what they need is not a place, what they need is a person. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. May we be that church. Be the church. Bow your heads together with me in prayer. Father, it is amazing that 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, nothing will be able to stand in the way of the church. And here we are, Lord, today, having been through so much, so much. Not just in our nation, but in the world, Lord. And yet still this weekend, billions of people will gather in your name. And Lord, while we come to be refreshed, And while we come to be connected together, while we come to worship, and while we come to listen and hopefully grow, Lord, help us realize that we also come to go. That we need to go. That we need to be your church. That it is one thing to come and attend the church, but from this place, Lord, you want us to impact our world 
the sphere of influence that each of us has. Lord, there are so many who are broken or downhearted, who are depressed. So many who are searching for answers. So many who are looking for peace. So many who desperately need to find love. So many who feel that they will never find joy. Their, their search for that has become hopeless. And Lord, we, we understand that it's, it's not a destination. It's a person. It's, it's you. But Lord, may this be a place where when people come to find that, when they walk in the door, your people, your church is so filled with your spirit and, and so filled with the fruits of that spirit, Lord, that, that even when people walk in this door, there is something fresh that they can't even explain. But there's something that they experience, and may all of it draw them to you. And thank you for giving us that opportunity. Thank you for giving us that chance. Thank you that in you, we can start over. Help each person here, Lord, whatever situation they find themselves in as far as that season of life, I pray that you'd bless them, that you'd give them the assurance that next time can be better than last time, especially when we put our faith in you. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.